Father, we pray this morning that you would open our eyes to see wonderful things in your word. And Father, we pray this morning that your gospel would come not simply with words, but also with power, with the Holy Spirit, and with full conviction. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we want to open our Bibles to 2 Corinthians chapter 12, beginning in verse 14. 2 Corinthians chapter 12, beginning in verse 14. And as Nathan said, this will be the conclusion of our series, Spiritual Power in the Church, uh, that we have marched through, uh, through the book of 2 Corinthians. Before we look at the text, I want to give you kind of a summary statement of where we intend to go this morning in the preaching of the Word. Here is kind of the focus, the aim of this morning's sermon. Sharing the gospel from a heart of love, integrity, and humility reveals the offense of sin and displays the power of God in the gospel by testing, instructing, and sanctifying those who believe. Well, that's a long sentence, so let me repeat it, and then we'll look at the text together. Sharing the gospel from a heart of love, integrity, and humility reveals the offense of sin and displays the power of God in the gospel. By testing, instructing, and sanctifying those who believe. Well, let's look at the text together. May God add his blessing to the reading of his word. 2 Corinthians chapter 12, beginning in verse 14. Hear the word of the Lord. Here, for this third time, I am ready to come to you. And I will not be a burden to you, for I do not seek what is yours, but you. For children are not responsible to save up for their parents, but parents for their children. I will most gladly spend and be expended for your souls. If I love you more, am I to be loved less? But be that as it may, I did not burden you myself. Nevertheless, crafty fellow that I am, I took you in by deceit. Certainly, I have not taken advantage of you through any of those whom I have sent to you. Have I? I urged Titus to go. And I sent the brother with him. Titus did not make, excuse me, take any advantage of you, did he? Did we not conduct ourselves in the same spirit and walk in the same steps? All this time, you have been thinking that we are defending ourselves to you. Actually, It is in the sight of God that we have been speaking in Christ and all for your upbuilding, beloved. For I am afraid that perhaps when I come, I may find you not to be what I wish and may be found by you to be not what you wish. That perhaps there will be strife, jealousy, angry tempers, disputes, slanders, Gossip, arrogance, disturbances. I'm afraid that when I come again, my God may humiliate me before you. And I may mourn over many of those who have sinned in the past and not repented of the impurity, immorality, and sensuality which they have practiced. Chapter 13. This is the third time I'm coming to you. Every fact is to be confirmed by the testimony of two or three witnesses. I have previously said, when present the second time, and though now absent, I say in advance to those who have sinned in the past and to all the rest as well, that if I come again, I will not spare anyone. Since you are seeking for proof of Christ who speaks in me and who is not weak toward you, but mighty in you, for indeed he was crucified because of weakness, yet... He lives because of the power of God. 
for we also are weak in him, yet we will live in him because of the power of God directed toward you. Test yourselves to see that you are in the faith. Examine yourselves. Or do you not recognize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you, unless indeed you fail the test? But I trust that you will realize that we ourselves do not fail the test. Now we pray to God that you do no wrong. Not that we ourselves may be approved, but that you may do what is right, even though we may appear unapproved. For we can do nothing against the truth, but only for the truth. For we rejoice when we ourselves are weak, but you are strong. This we also pray for, that you may be made complete. For this reason, I am writing these things while absent, so that when present, I need not use severity in accordance with the authority which the Lord gave for me, excuse me, gave me for building up and not for tearing down. Finally, brethren, rejoice. Be made complete. Be comforted. Be like-minded. Live in peace. And the God of love and peace will be with you. Greet one another with a holy kiss. All the saints greet you. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen and amen. Well, Paul says at the beginning of today's text, verse 14, here for this third time I am ready to come to you. Paul begins the conclusion of his letter by saying to the church in Corinth that he was ready, ready to come to them again. Well, what made Paul ready at this moment, in this time, to return to Corinth? Well, I want to submit to you three major reasons, and those will be our three points in today's sermon, that Paul was ready to return to the church in Corinth at this time. Number one was Paul's heart for the church. Paul's heart for the church. Number two, he wanted to see the power of God at work among them. The power of God. And number three, he wanted to see the fruit of the gospel. So Paul's heart for the church, the power of God, and the fruit of the gospel. The heart of love and integrity and humility motivated Paul to return to the Corinthians. Paul was also motivated to return by the unrepentant sin of Corinthians, their need for gospel reform and, their, and the very power of God to be on display. Paul wanted to return to observe, to see those things at work. And finally, Paul was motivated to return to see the Corinthians in order to test their faith, to instruct their behavior, and to build them up in Christ. Paul was the father of these saints. He started this church as a frontier missionary. He helped lead these people to faith in Christ, and as was Paul's custom, he equipped leaders, and then he moved to the next frontier. While serving elsewhere, Paul receives a letter explaining that there were issues in the life of the church. To be clear about those issues, sin was present. Unrepentant sin was present in the life of the church. And it was being carried out in, in open. So he wrote his first letter to correct these problems. And unfortunately, based on the content of this letter, 2 Corinthians, that we're now preaching through for the last several months, his first letter of correction, which is 1 Corinthians, did not accomplish the aim intended, at least not for all, as some, perhaps many, did not accept Paul's teaching and warning against particular sin They didn't see Paul as authoritative. According to chapter 2 of this letter, Paul pays them another visit, which he says caused them much sorrow for the purpose of correcting, again, those sins. So he shows up in person to deal with what his first letter had failed to do. And following his second sorrowful visit, he pens this second letter. So he's made two trips now, and now he's writing his second letter to the church in Corinth. And this letter, 
as we push through it, you can see is written in anguish. And there's no doubt that tears were spilled as he wrote. Because some remained unrepentant. And by doing so, by remaining unrepentant, they not only were rejecting his apostolic ministry, but by doing that, they were also rejecting the gospel of God himself. So when Paul says he's ready to come to them for the third time, it was with a single agenda in mind. To love the saints with the truth of the gospel for the sake of their soul. The same reason he planted the church. The same reason he wrote the first letter. The same reason he made the second visit. The same reason he wrote the second letter. And for the third time, he's going to visit for a single purpose. To love them with the gospel for the sake of their soul. Can you imagine Paul's pain? He's loved this church with his life, and yet he was being rejected. He was telling them the truth, but they were believing the lies of others. He was freely giving what was of greatest value to them, Christ and his life for Christ's sake, and yet they were paying for that which was harmful. As adults, we have the advantage that we lacked as young people. We have the great wisdom of experience on our side. We have the wisdom of retrospect. How many times have you said, if I would have only known that before? Or, if I was in those shoes again, I would have done things differently. We've all made those kind of comments because we realize things now that we didn't know before. We've learned from our mistakes. We've seen some tried and true outcomes to certain actions. Perhaps as parents, we have all experienced Paul's pain here to go the extra mile for your child, only to not be appreciated or rejected by the ones with for whom you have loved deeply, who you've sacrificed for, given freely of yourself, and to compound the hurt for your selfless acts of love, you're not only rejected, but in Paul's case, he was accused of a lack of care. He was accused of deceitful things, and even worse, of ill intent toward the very ones that he had selflessly loved. For Paul, as their spiritual father, the worst part, is that he knows their eternal life hangs in the balance of these false accusations and their sinful actions that have accompanied these accusations. So today's text wraps up Paul's loving and grace-filled appeal to these rebels in Corinth to repent of their sin and to believe the gospel. Well, I want us to see the three things that I mentioned at the beginning of the sermon. The first thing that I want you to see this morning is the heart of the gospel appeal that Paul makes. There's a heart behind it. Paul's heart behind this gospel appeal that he makes. Look with me in verse 14. He says, Here for this third time I'm ready to come to you, and I will not be a burden to you. For I do not seek what is yours, but you. For children are not responsible to save up for their parents, but parents for their children. I will most gladly spend and be expended for your souls. If I love you more, am I to be loved less? At the very heart of Paul's missionary journeys was his godlike, fatherly love for the souls of men. Paul loved people. And he cared very deeply about the souls of the people that he came across. All the travel, sleeplessness, hunger, hardships, beatings, shipwrecks, you know the list, persecution, abuse that Paul suffered were wrapped up in a stronger motive than any of those difficulties could mount. So no matter what came against Paul, that long list of trials that Paul went through did not equal the love that Paul had in his heart for the saints that he preached to. Paul loved the souls of others more than he loved his own life. And according to the text, Paul was seeking people. And in particular, he was seeking the good of their soul. That's what Paul cared about. I can think of no greater love 
than for someone to spend their life or give up their life for the eternal sake of others, which is exactly what Paul was doing. Sometimes the laying down of our life is not dying, but giving of ourselves entirely for the sake of others. And Paul mimicked this. He did this well. He was a long sufferer. Paul's love for the Corinthians is undeniable. Paul's heart of love for the Corinthians was evidenced in his willingness to be never a burden to them. To never be a burden to the church. He refused to seek what he could have rightly requested. Wages for his labors. Paul demonstrated God's love to the Corinthians by caring primarily about them and their souls above all else. He concludes in verse 15 by asking a very convicting rhetorical question. If I love you more, am I to be loved less? Well, I don't think it takes a genius to figure out the answer to the question that Paul's asking. More love does not earn less love. In Paul's gospel appeal to the Corinthians, we see his heart of love. But Paul's gospel appeal wasn't only out of love, it was also with integrity. Look with me in verse 16, it says, But be that as it may, I did, by, I did, not, burden my, excuse me, I did not burden you myself. Nevertheless, crafty fellow that I am, I took you in by deceit. Certainly I have not taken advantage of you through any of those whom I have sent to you. And he says in verse 18, I urged Titus to go, and I sent the brother with him. And again, he asked the question, have I taken advantage? Have I taken advantage of you? And he concludes those series of questions by saying, did we not conduct ourselves in the same spirit and walk in the same steps? Did myself, Titus, and this other unnamed brother, not all conduct ourselves in the same way? Was our character not in unison? Was our message not the same? What Paul is communicating here is that every action that Paul performed among them, and even the ones he performed in his absence, had been full of integrity, unlike the accusations that were being made against him. And Paul's sarcasm in verse 16 may not be so obvious in our English translation especially if you're reading from the New American Standard like I am this morning. But I think the ESV helps us to understand the sarcasm a little better. Here's the way the ESV reads 2 Corinthians 12, 16. But granting that I myself did not burden you, I was crafty, you say, and got the better of you by deceit. What Paul's saying is, this is the accusation that's made against me. He's not calling himself crafty. He's saying, this is the accusation that you say about me that I was crafty, that I deceived you. And Paul rejects that. Paul is saying, you're accusing me of craftiness and deceit, but nothing could be further from the truth. He invites them to investigate his actions, to, in, to even investigate the actions of the brothers that he sent in his, on his behalf. Paul invites a full investigation of his conduct and his walk with the Lord before them. He says, investigate me. Saints, let me add a word of caution to us here. If you ever find yourself trying to conceal things, things from those around us, you're playing with fire. God's people always welcome investigation into their life and conduct. Let me be even more specific, if I may, for a minute. Our cell phones and computers should be free for others to investigate. Our search history is fair game to our spouses. Christians don't delete their viewing history because they have nothing to hide. Students, your electronic devices should never contain anything that you feel the need to conceal from your parents. Nothing. Simply put, our conduct and character should be put on full display. And if there are things that you feel necessary to conceal, then you're living in sin and your immediate repentance is required. Paul says, I'm an open book. 
Fully investigate me. Investigate Titus. Investigate this other brother. Investigate us. All you want. If you know the Lord is speaking to you about this matter, and you feel the weight of the Holy Spirit's conviction, I want to invite you to listen carefully to the remainder of the sermon because Paul addresses very firmly this issue, yet with much encouragement and hope for all who may have sinned in this area. At the root of Paul's gospel appeal is a heart of integrity. He's saying, you can investigate me through and through, and you're going to find nothing but integrity. I want you to see a third and final attribute that was at the heart of Paul's gospel appeal. Not only did he love the church, not only was he acting with integrity, but he also had a heart of humility. And I want you to see that in verses 19 through 21. He says, all this time you've been thinking that we were defending ourselves to you. Actually, it is in the sight of God that we have been speaking in Christ. And all for your upbuilding, beloved. For I'm afraid, he, he lists two fears here, verse 20 and 21. For I am afraid that perhaps when I come, I may find you to be not what I wish and may be found by you to be not what you wish, that perhaps there will be strife, jealousy, angry tempers, disputes, slanders, gossip, arrogance, and disturbances. And then he lists the second fear. And I'm afraid that when I come again, my God may humiliate me before you, and I may mourn over many of those who have sinned in the past and not repented, of the impurity, immorality, and sensuality which they have practiced. What may have seemed like a defense of self was in actuality a loving appeal by God through the Apostle Paul for the church in Corinth to repent. Paul wasn't exalting self or even tearing down the Corinthians. He was speaking in Christ for the building up of the saints. Paul says that he's afraid that when he arrives in Corinth, that he's going to find sin present in them. It's his fear. As a spiritual father, the thing that he trembled about most was arriving in Corinth to find them in sin. He gives this list of sins that he fears he may discover at work among them, strife, jealousy, angry tempers, disputes, slanders, gossip, arrogance, and disturbances. They're all signs of spiritual immaturity. He was afraid that he was going to find them immature in their faith. Part of the reason he had this concern was they had proven their immaturity. They hadn't matured enough yet to become generous givers as we saw in chapters 8 and 9. They had proved themselves to be immature because they were still living in sin that even the world considered wicked. They had proved themselves to be immature because false teachers easily walked in among them, spread lies, and the Corinthians were confused. So all these examples of their immaturity had Paul on red alert that when he returned for this third time, he might find them as their spiritual father, one who had invested in them, that they would still be immature. And he was concerned. These types of sins, though not acceptable in any way, which is why Paul lists them, are examples of immaturity among believers. Perhaps old sinful pathways that they had lived in for years before their conversion. Paul intended to come and correct their behavior. He makes no bones about that. He makes it clear. He says again in the very next verse that he fears not only discovering this list of new sins that may be at work in the Corinthians, but even more devastating, that old sins that he's already addressed of impurity and immorality and sensuality may still exist. That was his greatest fear. Not that immaturity remained, but that rebellion still had a foothold in the life of the church. That unrepentance would be present. The thought of this would humiliate Paul. It would humiliate him as their father in the faith. As one who believed them to be in Christ. In the same way that a parent delights in a child who is steadfast in their faith and walking in obedience and truth. Can you think of a greater joy, mom and dad, than to know that your kid is 
walking with Christ? I can't. So also will that parent, that same parent lament and grieve when the opposite is true. That their child is living in rebellion and unrepentance. Paul dreads the thought of arriving in Corinth to discover that his second appeal for repentance had landed on deaf ears and that those in the church were still living in unrepentant sin. In humiliation, as a spiritual parent, Paul would grieve publicly for these individuals. He says ahead of time, I will weep for your souls. Paul's gospel appeal came not only from love and integrity, but also in humility. But I want you to see not only Paul's heart in his gospel appeal, but I want you to hear the message of Paul's appeal. Look with me in chapter 13, beginning in verse 1. This is the third time I'm coming to you. Every fact is to be confirmed by the testimony of two or three witnesses. We should be reminded here that Paul has been accused of being a weak minister of God. He was weak, is what they say. These false accusers, which Paul sarcastically refers to as super apostles, uh, I hope you've appreciated Paul's sarcasm in several portions of 2 Corinthians. He calls them super apostles and says that because Paul offered the gospel free of charge and that he had all this suffering in his life, that he was weak. And that he had to make a living on the side rather than be supported by his ministry was evidence that he was weak and that the power of God was not present in his ministry. In response, Paul doesn't defend himself, though it seems like that at several points along the way, but rather appeals as if to a court, if you will, by saying, let's bring out the witnesses for these accusations. Again, with integrity, Paul's an open book. He's willing to be investigated. So he invites in the witnesses. Let's bring the witnesses forth. The first thing that the message of the gospel does when these witnesses come forth, we'll see that it highlights or exposes the offense that sin is to God. Paul says, hey, if I'm going to come, there's going to be witnesses. Let's, let's just put everybody on trial. Let's just all go on trial before the Lord. Verse 2, he says, I have previously said when present the second time, and though now absent, I say in advance, he's giving them a heads up, to those who have sinned in the past and to all the rest as well, it's everybody, we're all going on trial, that if I come again, I will not spare anyone. Since you are seeking for proof, you want proof? Since you are seeking for proof of Christ, who speaks in me and who is not weak towards you, but mighty in you. Paul says, you say I'm weak? You say that I lack the real power of God? Well, why don't we test that when I come? Why don't we test it when I come? He says, I'm giving you a heads up. Before I get there, we're going to test these accusations. Just so you know that when I arrive, the gospel, God's gospel, the gospel that exposes the light or the darkness in the hearts of men, it's coming with me. And everyone's going to be held accountable to God's standard. Every man's heart and actions will be weighed in the light of the gospel. No one will be spared from the judgment of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Paul is coming in authority of God. But his strength is not in his person. Even though he says very clearly in the text, he says, I will not spare anyone. Paul's not speaking from his strength, his person, but rather from the power of the gospel that he preaches. They wanted proof of the power of Paul's gospel of which he boasted in his letters. The Corinthians would discover the proof of Christ in Paul through the gospel message he had already preached, he had written about, and was going to preach about again. Paul admitted that he himself was weak. 
He was boasting in his weakness. But that the God of the gospel is, is not weak. And that when God confronts sin, he judges sin with a mighty torrent of his holiness. The church in Corinth is about to face, be confronted with the holiness of God, not the holiness of Paul. When the gospel is preached, when the truth is preached, when the truth is heralded, sin is exposed. The Corinthians wanted proof of Christ in Paul, and they wanted to see the power of his ministry. They were about to get it. They were about to get it upon his third visit. The Bible tells us, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That's the measure, not Paul, but God's glory. In John chapter 3, 19 through 21, it says, This is the judgment, that the light, that's Jesus, has come into the world, and men love the darkness rather than the light, for their deeds were evil. For everyone who does evil hates the light, and does not come to the light for fear that his deeds will be exposed. But he who practices the truth comes to the light so that his deeds may be manifested as having been wrought in God. The gospel exposes the offense of sin. But I want you to see a second thing about this message that Paul preaches. Not just that sin will be exposed, but that God's power will be demonstrated. God's power will be demonstrated. Paul says, I am weak. Paul was weak in the same manner that Christ was weak. Look with me so that I can give some explanation to that statement. He says in verse 4, For indeed he was crucified because of weakness. For indeed Jesus was crucified because of weakness. Christ was crucified as a man. He appeared to those present as weak on the cross. Hanging there, suspended on a tree, being mocked and jeered as he died the shameful death of humiliation on a cross. Never mind that just a few moments earlier Jesus had spoken the simple words, I am He. And when He spoke that, the whole cohort that had come to arrest Him fell flat on their face. Three little words. Never mind that Jesus had just told the one who would cowardly, cowardly send Him away to His cross death to Pontius Pilate, that you would have no power, you have no power that has not been given from above. Never mind that Jesus could have called upon legions of angels to rescue him in an instant. Never mind all those things. Because here Jesus, the man, hung on the cross in weakness. But weak Jesus had predetermined that he would humble himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. In his seemingly weakest moment, Jesus is crucified on a cross that possessed more power than the world could comprehend. In his weakness, God's, God's power was on display. That's why Paul can say, like Nathan preached last week, my grace is sufficient for you. For my power is perfected in weakness. And we see that most clearly in Jesus on the cross. When in reality, the only weakness that Jesus possessed was the weakness imputed to him by his fellow men through their inability to abstain from sin. The weakness that Jesus took with him on the cross was our sin because we were too weak to not sin. So all our sin gets heaped on Jesus. That's how weak he was. Jesus took on the weakness of men by condescending and taking on human flesh and having our sins imputed to him and absorbing the wrath of God. 
That's the weakness he agreed to. In this same book, he made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Jesus had to die in weakness in order for us to be saved. In the same manner, Paul says that he was giving his life for the salvation of others. He was suffering like Christ for the sake of others so that their souls might know the truth of the gospel. And what appeared like weakness in the life of Paul to the Corinthians was actually Paul trying to be a conduit of God's grace and power to their lives. I love the way Scott Haifman said it in his commentary on 2 Corinthians. Paul's primary purpose as an apostle is to to mediate through his suffering in Christ the knowledge of God and the transforming power of the life-giving Spirit. Therefore, for the Corinthians to reject Paul's apostleship was to reject the power of the gospel he preached. And to reject the gospel was to earn the righteous judgment of God against them, which is what Paul is warning them of, will be the demonstration of God's power when he comes. He says, for indeed he was crucified because of weakness, yet he lives because of the power of God. For we also are weak in him, yet we will live in him because of the power of God directed toward you. I don't know if you caught that, but there's three very important words right after the text that we just looked at. For indeed he was crucified because of weakness, yet he lives. Yet he lives. Praise God, Grace Church. Yet he lives. Because of the power of God, death was not victorious over Jesus. Think about all the precautions that the enemy took to keep Jesus in the grave. The the stone, the seal, the guard. Yet none were able to detain him as a prisoner in the grave. But Jesus burst forth in glorious power. Christ's power is the power of his resurrection, which vindicates his weakness and vanquishes his foes. Paul says, we're all weak. So that when I come to you, if you think that you're strong in Christ, you've mis- you're mistaken. We're weak. We're in need. We need the power of God to be at work in us. The power of God directed toward the Corinthians is the message of the gospel. And it is either redemptive or condemning. The reality of Christ's death and resurrection is good news to those who believe. But if you reject that gospel, if you reject that gospel, the news that follows is terrible. Listen to me, students. Perhaps some adults, even with us this morning. You've been around church for a while. You've heard the gospel in your home. You've heard it in your classes. You've heard it proclaimed from this pulpit. You've read it in your word. If you continue to stiff arm the good news of Jesus Christ, if you reject that gospel that you've heard with your ears, the consequence is terrible. It's terrible. The resurrection of power, excuse me, the resurrection power of Jesus redeems those who believe. Listen to me. The consequence is terrible, but if you'll only believe the good news of Jesus, that he came to this earth, took on flesh, died on that cross, sinless, taking on our sin, putting that sin to death, being buried in that grave, but raising again in power. If you'll believe in the resurrected Jesus, your soul can be redeemed. And that judgment that would have been cast on you will be set aside. And you'll find shelter in the blood of Jesus. Weak as we are, 
exposed by our sin, Jesus dies the cross death and rose from the grave so that we might be saved. Dear listener, I'm going to say it again. I'm going to ask again. Is that your hope? Is that your hope? Is your hope in the resurrection power of Jesus? There's no greater news on earth. There's no other Savior for our sin problem. Christ alone is our hope. And the Bible says, yet He lives so that we might know the power of God's saving grace. The message of the cross exposes sin. It it proclaims the death of Christ and it demonstrates the power of God through the resurrection of Jesus. Grace Church. Right here, 2 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 4 is the title of the whole series of 2 Corinthians on display. Spiritual power in the church. Spiritual power in the church. It's found in this gospel that Paul proclaims in this verse. Well, finally, I want you to see, we'll conclude with this. The aim or result of Paul's gospel appeal to the church in Corinth. He tells them he's coming so that God may demonstrate his power. This is what he says in verse 5. He gives us three really aims of his gospel appeal. Verse 5 says, test yourselves to see that you are in the faith. Examine yourselves. Or do you not recognize this about yourselves? That Jesus Christ is in you, unless indeed you fail the test. But I trust that you will realize that we ourselves do not fail the test. What is the test? It's a simple test. Here's the test. You ready to take it? You ready to take Paul's test? Is Christ in you? Is Christ in you? That's the test. Is Christ in you? Is he really in you? After further examination, he asks again, examine yourselves. It's the same question. Is Christ in you? Paul was humbly asking the church in Corinth to consider. Is Christ in you? And he had the fear as we spoke that he might return and find some in unrepentant sin which would prove that they had failed the test. That indeed, though he thought at one point Christ was in them, that he would find in actuality that Christ is not in them. Listen. There's nobody who's a member of this church that we as a body didn't believe was in Christ. We believe that we're all in Christ who are members here at this church. But it is certainly possible for us flawed men to miss what's truly in the heart of man. It's possible to be a member of a church like the members in Corinth in Paul's day, who Paul, who I think probably had a pretty good idea about who was in Christ and who was not in Christ. But it's certainly possible that some would fail the test by living in unrepentant sin. So I'm going to ask again, saints, is there unrepentant sin in your life? And if there is, will you repent? Will you repent? Do not fail the test. Prove Christ is in you. Oh God, will you spare everyone in this room from such fate that some of these in Corinth faced? Father, will you be gracious again and cause us by faith to rest in your saving grace? And again tomorrow when we wake up, will you grant us faith to believe, to continue to believe that you will not let us go? And Father, I'm praying right now, right in the middle of this sermon, I'm praying for those who have been 
excommunicated from this body. Father, we plead with you. Father, we plead with you that you would grab their attention. Father, that you would cause them to repent of their sin, that they have firmly dug their feet in the ground and refused to repent. Father, I pray that you would break those hard hearts and that you would grant them repentance. God, we, we can't convince them. We need your Holy Spirit to do a mighty work in the hearts of those who have been removed from this body. Lord, would you be gracious to them? Father, we, we weep for them. Our hearts are broken. Father, would you grant repentance? Oh God, be gracious. Amen. Well, I want you to see that every time the gospel is preached, our faith will be examined. Every time you hear the gospel afresh, you should be encouraged. Your faith is going to be tested. And you should find, if you're in Christ, that it's a message of hope and joy and rest. Not conviction. Look with me in verse 7. He says, Now we pray to God that you do no wrong. Not that we ourselves may appear approved, but that you may do what is right, even though we may appear unapproved. So Paul appeared unapproved, right? This message of unapproval. Paul's apostleship was being accused of being false. And what Paul says, whether you think I'm unapproved or not, right, no matter how it may appear, what I care about is whether you're doing what is right. He says in verse 8, for we can do nothing against the truth, but only for the truth. Paul only had one, 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 one motor that went one way. It was all for the truth. All for the truth. I want you to see that's exactly what Paul's holding out before him here. It's the truth of the gospel. It's the truth about Jesus Christ, that it exposes sin, that through his resurrection we can be saved, right? Paul keeps holding it out for him, and he says this should instruct your actions. This should cause you to do what's right, that we may know that we are in Christ. Not only that we believe the truth, that's why Paul thought that many of these were in Christ, but that our actions would support what we believe that we would bear fruit in keeping with repentance. Whether they approve of Paul or not was really not the issue, though certainly their rejection of Paul meant they were rejecting the gospel. We can do nothing against the truth, Paul says. His life mimicked the truth. Every time the gospel is preached, we will be instructed to do what is right. And then here's the last thing in our final point here. The aim of, God, of Paul's gospel appeal was not only to test our faith and to instruct our actions, but to sanctify our hearts. The third aim was to sanctify our hearts. He says, for we rejoice when we ourselves are weak. Harkens back to last week's text. But you are strong. Sarcasm again. This we also pray for that you may be made complete, that you may be sanctified. For this reason, I am writing these things while absent, so that when present, I need not use severity in accordance with the authority which the Lord gave me for building up and not tearing down. Paul was trying to build them up. He was trying to assist in their sanctification. He was pleading with them to consecrate themselves before the Lord. And he tells us how to do that. Those being sanctified have two distinct qualities. They rejoice in weakness and they are made complete. They rejoice in weakness. Listen, saints. Nathan said it last week. We rejoice in weakness. We boast in our weaknesses because in our weakness, the power of God is present. We're humbled. We see our need and we depend entirely on the gospel. So I'll say it again like we said at the beginning. Sharing the gospel from a heart of love, integrity, and humility reveals the offense of sin and displays the power of God in Christ, in the gospel, by testing our faith, by instructing our actions, and by sanctifying our hearts. Well, what's our application? How do we apply what Paul spills out? Well, there's a few verses left. 
to help us down that path. He says, finally, brethren, rejoice, be made complete. Isn't that what he just said? He repeats himself. Must be important. Rejoice, be made complete, be comforted, be like-minded, live in peace, and the God of love and peace will be with you. Greet one another with a holy kiss. All the saints greet you. He says, rejoice in your weakness. Here's my challenge. Go home, get before the Lord, and ask Him to expose your weaknesses. Show me your weaknesses. Ask God to show me, show me my weaknesses, God. And when He reveals them, praise Him. Rejoice that He's exposed your weakness. Cry out to Him for His help. Hope in the gospel because of your weakness. And be sanctified. Well, that's what you do for yourself. There's a couple of applications, I think, for one another as well. Like Paul, we want to build one another up. So here's, here's assignment number two. Not only seek the Lord about your weaknesses, but assignment number two. Ask God to show you ways to build others up in Christ. To build others up in Christ. To bless one another like Paul does. Like we'll conclude this sermon series. When he says... The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. May that be true, O saints of Grace Church. Let's pray. Father, we ask that you would be gracious to us. Father, we do pray that we would experience what Paul Ask for the Corinthians that we would know the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, that we would know the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit. Father, be with us, we pray. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.